Welcome to the how the why. With John Barrett Ingalls. Exploring and celebrating the creative process and the creative purpose of authors, editors, artists, and publishers that make up and inspire the 1888 family. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get creative. Welcome to our second Eichler Sessions. Uh, the Eichler Sessions are a series of conversations with creative pioneers hosted in historic Eichler homes. During the early 1950s, the award-winning home builder Joseph Eichler influenced the face of American architecture by developing distinctive residential subdivisions of mid-century modern style tract housing. The city of Orange is the site of 350 of the 600 Southern California Eichlers. So let's give a few thank yous before we jump into this. First off, we'll thank the city of Orange. Uh, thank you to Jeffrey Crussell and the Jeffrey Crussell Fine Properties. Julio Duenas of Creative Noodle is creatively noodling around with his camera. Julio, thank you. <laughs> Pleasure to see you again. Uh, Will D and his team from Provisions Market. I hope everybody's enjoying all the wonderful food and uh, pickled veggies and pumpkin soup shots, which is all wonderful, <laughs> and beer and wine. Thank you. Uh, Portola Coffee Lab, uh, thank you very much. And Daniel and Teresa Gaiman um, for allowing us to use. Thank you so much. I will uh, officially introduce myself after the interview, but your home is beautiful. Um, and. Finally, thank you to Denise Hamilton for uh, joining us this evening. So Denise, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna keep reading. <laughs> Denise is a former journalist, Fulbright scholar, and Edgar Award finalist. Denise Hamilton is the author of seven crime novels set in LA. She's also the editor of, the Los, and of Los Angeles Noir and Los Angeles Noir Two, the classics which spent, she spent two months, uh, which spent two months on the bestseller list and won the Edgar Award for best short story. That's excellent, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, James Elroy called Denise's latest novel, Damage Control, which I just finished and phenomenal and everybody should read it, a superb psychological thriller. His words were more impressive than me saying. <laughs> whatever it was that I said. Uh, Hamilton lives in the Los Angeles suburbs with her husband and two boys. She also writes about perfume for the Los Angeles Times. And if you read Damage Control, you'll learn a lot about perfume, which I learned a lot about since. So Denise, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Now, I wanna take it back from the beginning and get into where we are now. So you started off as a journalist. But is that, at what point did you know that that was what you were going to do or wanted to do? Well, it's funny because I was always a writer, you know, and a reader, lifelong reader. But I always thought, well, um, I can do that for fun, but I need a real job. So I majored in uh, business and um, economics at Loyola Marymount. 
because I thought I'll go into the business world and I'll do this little hobby thing on the side. And um, what happened was I worked in the business world for about uh, eight months and I was really miserable. And I had this boyfriend who was studying journalism and he would bring his homework assignments over. And I was like, wow, that seems really interesting. Way more fun than what I'm doing. So I took a couple classes at um, UCLA Extension. And then I decided to get a master's in journalism because I already had a bachelor's in economics, which I didn't want to use. And um, so I um, got a master's at Cal State Northridge. And what I didn't know was that the woman who ran the journalism program, her husband was like a big shot at the LA Times. And so whenever she found a student who showed promise, she would tell her husband, I've got a student for you, give my student an internship. Mm. And he did. So that's how I landed at the LA Times for a summer internship in the San Fernando Valley Bureau. And um, I barely knew what, uh, who, what, when, where, why was. And I thought the first time I have to write a story on deadline, I will be revealed as the fraud that I am. Because even <laughs> though I know all the theoretical um, information about how to write a story and the history and theory of journalism, how can you write a story in an hour and a half, you know? And, um, and the first assignment that I got was to go and um, interview a cop about a cold case murder of a little girl. And so I interviewed him and I came back to the office and I had like two hours to write the story. And I just like was hyperventilating. And then I, and then I sat down at the computer and I thought, okay, all I have to do is do who, what, when, where, why. And that's all. So I like plugged in the facts and an hour and a half went by, and then they said, okay, where's the story? And I sent it on the computer, and I thought, okay, this is the moment of truth. You know, I'm gonna be like kicked out. I'm gonna be escorted out by the security guards. And, um, you know, then they called me over to edit it, and they, they pretty much rewrote the entire thing. But um, I said, oh, it reads a lot better now, thank you. And they said, okay, all right, tomorrow you're gonna do this. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm not fired. <laughs> and so I really did learn on the job. I saw it as an apprenticeship. And um, I was like the summer intern who never left. Uh, eventually, after a couple of years, they hired me permanently. <laughs> now, you were telling me about some of the stories uh, that you were telling me about the one in uh, Orange County. Would you mind telling everybody about? Oh, sure, yeah. You know. Um, at that point, I, was, I thought I died and went to heaven because the idea that I could like go and interview people and ask them anything and they would answer me because I, I had the little press pass from the LA Times. I mean, I could have said to them, how often do you have sex with your wife? <laughs> and they probably you know, would have told me. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was like the, the, you know, the golden you know, e-ticket. And so every day I'd go to the office and it was, like a new short story unfolding, and it was a new part of LA. They'd say, okay, today you're gonna to interview a billionaire in Malibu, or today you're gonna go interview homeless Latino transvestites living in the LA River, wow. you know? Um, and so one day, um, uh, the assignment that I actually came up with was there were a lot of um, computer chip factory takeover robberies going on and a lot of them were in Orange County. Orange County and the deep San Gabriel Valley and the computer chips you know those little silicon chips that go into the computers and the phones and all of that 
And what happened was these were basically, um, there were these robberies going on where um, the uh, FBI was involved. They uh, would, uh, this is Chinese organized crime, and they would send in like a low-level person to get a job at the factory, like as a security guard or, you know, as someone working on the, um, on the factory floor. And that person was a mole. And they would like report back, oh, this is when the job is going to be finished and the, the, the you know, the, the lock, the, 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 the safe is going to be filled with the finished computer chips. And this is when the security guards change shifts. And this is, when the, this is what time the owner gets here. And here's a layout of the factory floor. And then they would go in with Uzis and they would wear literally suits. And they would look like, you know, corporate guys. And they would do these takeover robberies where they would have everyone on the floor, you know, tied up in 20 minutes. And um, sometimes they would even go to the owner's house. And he wasn't there. He was at the factory. And they would have the wife and the kids tied up. And the owner, they would say to the owner, open the, open the safe. And he'd say no. And they'd say, we have someone for you to talk to. And they'd put the wife on the phone. Mm. And the wife would say, do what they say because they're here. And so these, I mean, it was like a novel. It was so amazing. Um, so I needed to like get access to some of the criminals who were doing this. And through my police sources, um, through a probation officer, uh, he said, OK, I've got a guy who did some of these robberies. And he's on probation now. He's out of jail. And he'll talk to you, but you can't use his name. And he says he wants, he was Vietnamese American. And he said, okay, you need to go, the, the guy said, he was only like 21 or 22, he was young. He goes, okay, I'll meet you at the mall in uh, Little Saigon, and I'm gonna be driving a red Subaru. I'm gonna pull up, and you can get in the car, and we'll drive around, and I'm not gonna tell you my name, but I'll answer whatever questions you want about how we pulled these robberies off. And I said, okay, because <laughs> I was young and dumb. <laughs> uh, now I would think twice about it. You know, I have kids. You know. But anyway, so, but it all worked out exactly according to plan. And he drove around and he told me exactly how he did it. And I ended up writing a story for the Times. And then I did a piece for Der Spiegel, too, because they were doing a piece on um, like high tech, uh, high tech computer crime. Mm. So. I really felt like as a reporter in, in LA in Southern California that every day I was like collecting all this amazing raw material and meeting all these incredible characters and doing these stories and getting to see different parts of LA and Southern California that the average person just didn't get a chance to see. So it's like every day I wrote a different short story. You could have just done journalism, but what was it that, that wasn't enough for you? Well, um, after about 10 years of writing in the who, what, when, where, why style, um, I started to get feeling constrained with the limitations of daily journalism. And often, you know, even when I wrote a story, um, the best parts of it that I liked the most would end up on the cutting room floor, the editing room floor, mm. because it was like, well, this is like some weird segue into the person's grandmother and how they came over from the South China Seas and as a Vietnamese refugee and they were attacked by pirates and, uh, you know, they had to throw the gold bullion overboard or whatever. And this doesn't really fit with this little story that you're doing about, you know, 
you know, academic regulations or whatever. And it's like, yes, I know, but I, that's my favorite part. Right. You know, so I mean, I was always like a feature writer at heart, kind of. And so I wanted to like crawl inside the heads of these characters who I interviewed, and I wanted to tell their stories in a different way than daily journalism allowed. And so I joined a writing group. It was nine ladies, and um, we met every other Sunday night. And we were all like in Silver Lake and Echo Park and Los Feliz. And um, I don't know why they let me in at that point, because I hadn't written any fiction. But I think they thought I would be a good critic of their words, mm. because I did that all day. I wrote and I edited. And so um, after a while, I realized, well, I have to bring some stuff in. So finally, one day, I raised my hand and said, I'll have something to read next time. And then I had a deadline. I had two weeks to write some fiction. Oh, and as a reporter, <clears throat> I understood that, right. a deadline. So I thought, I went home and I thought, okay, what am I gonna write, what am I gonna write? And of course I waited and waited and waited. And then I thought, okay, well, write what you know. What do I know? I'm a white female LA Times reporter in this big multicultural city and I've got all these crazy stories that I've covered. So all I have to do is pluck one out. And I've always been a fan of noir and Raymond Chandler and you know the old Humphrey Bogart movies and you know, you know James M. Cain and uh, uh, all, all the classic noir dudes. And, um, and I thought, okay, I'm going to write a little crimey thing because I've covered so much of it, sadly, being in L.A. So I created a female reporter character who was like, you know, taller, thinner, prettier, <laughs> younger than me, who went on more dates than me. Because at that point, I think we had like two babies in diapers and... You know, we, if we had any spare time, my husband and I, we would like crawl off and take a nap because we were so <laughs> sleep deprived and we had no money. And so writing what became my first novel was kind of like my intellectual and cultural escape. It was like, it allowed me to live this glamorous life that, that was not, you know, scraping pots and, you know, cleaning diapers and, you know, giving baths and all of that stuff. So I, you know, I put on the cape and escaped into, you know, my reporter character's wonderful life. So the Jasmine trade was the first one. And what made you decide to pick that story? You covered the story on parachute children, which I didn't know anything about parachute children until I was doing my research. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and then why it was that story that, that you chose for the first one? Sure. Well, um, I, I, um, I was working in the, uh, in the San Gabriel Valley Bureau of the LA Times. And um, I, 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 do, I did what you know, reporters always do is you say, so what's going on? What's new in your neighborhood when you go and talk to people? And this one teacher at San Marino High School said, well, I'm seeing all these like kids who are living by themselves in these big mansions in San Marino. And they're mostly like um, immigrant Asian Chinese kids, Korean kids, and sometimes they have butlers and drivers, but they're like living alone and I'm really worried about them because, you know, they could fall prey to gangs and it's illegal for kids to live alone and they don't have anyone to talk to. And so being a reporter, I immediately said, can I meet some of these kids? Hmm. And he said, yes, but if you write about them, you cannot use their names because they're minors. And um, you can't tell anyone that I was the link. You know? And I said, oh, don't worry, we're, we're really good at that. And so he introduced me to some kids who then introduced me to other kids who introduced me to other kids. And I found there was like this whole like world of these kids who lived in these big mansions in 
the San Gabriel Valley. Um, some of them were middle class. Some of them lived with um, legal guardians. Some of them lived with the mom. But a lot of them were just literally on their own. And they would invite me to their houses. They would invite me to have dinner with them and pay for everything. And which, of course, I couldn't accept as a, as a reporter for the LA Times. But I realized that these kids were very um, vulnerable to bad influence because they let me, a complete stranger, into, into their homes. Mm. So I wrote this big story for the LA Times. And when I turned it in um, about these kids living alone, my editor, one of the editors downtown said, can you just look up Denise's sources? Because we think she's made this story up. <laughs> We've never heard of this. And this just sounds really crazy. And I was like, hey, this is Los Angeles. Why would I ever need to make yeah. anything up? <laughs> Any kind of crazy, bizarre, noir thing you can imagine, it's already going on. You just have to get out of the office and go talk to people, which is what I like to do. So once they determined that it was actually um, true and they made me go do more research and I found that, you know, I found this UCLA um, master's thesis that estimated there were like 60,000 of these kids in the US. So then they ran it and um, it uh, was reprinted all over the world and it won some awards. And um, anyway, but so then I went on to write a million other stories about the, you know, the brown bears that come down from the mountains and take a dip in someone's pool <laughs> and they call out the, 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 you know, fish and game and they shoot the poor thing. Uh, but um, so these kids haunted me though and I wanted to write about them more than daily journalism allowed. So I decided um, that I would, um, ex I would kill one of them in, in a book. Sure. And, uh, and so the, the Jasmine trade starts with this uh, teenage girl who's found slumped in her Lexus in one of these big um, malls out in um, on Del Mar and, and Valley Boulevard in <laughs> the San Gabriel Valley. And the reporter gets sent out to cover what she thinks is just some kind of random um, you know, murder and she carjacking and she finds that this girl was one of these parachute kids who lived by herself. And they're called parachute kids because the whole fam family kind of parachutes into a wealthy neighborhood, buy, buys a house, leave the, put the kids in school and the parents go back to Asia because they've got like businesses and factories and things. And sometimes the dad flies in every six weeks or something. Sometimes the mom's there and, um, but sometimes not. And so that's why they're called parachute kids. So I, I you know, spent like about three months doing research on that. But I, I just wanted to write a book about it because I just thought this is like the very unusual and nobody knows about it. And I, I want to explore this world. Um, I didn't want to write it from the perspective of a Chinese teenager because I don't know that. Right. I wanted to write from the perspective of the white reporter who goes to investigate that world because that's had been my experience. And I love that. I love kind of writing about the cultural landscape of Southern California because it's so fascinating. Mm. So now you wrote that first book. You got it published, which is great for the first book. Did you know that you were going to continue at that point with the Eve Diamond series? Did you know that ah, I've, I've, I think I've caught on to something and I, can, I have all these other stories, maybe I can just no, I, I thought I could die happy now because I had written a book mm -hmm. and it was going to be published. Um, but my, the woman who became my agent, um, when she read the book, she called and she said, um, I have one important question for you. I'd like to represent you, but can you, can you, I, I'd like to talk to you. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking that she's going to say, um, I figured out who, who did it 
too early and you need to change the killer. Or, um, you know, this reporter who solves crimes, I don't, I don't get it. Can you make her like a cop or something? Mm. And she said, are you working on a sequel? Because publishers like a series and because they can always sell the next one. And I want to know what to tell them. And I said, how did you know? <laughs> I've got about, you know, I've got, I've got the next five books outlined. Wow. Would you like me to send you the, the, next, the first 40 pages of the sequel? And of course, that was a lie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, give me a week mm. and I'll get you 40 pages. Because the one thing I knew how to do is write fast. And I already had my main character. And I just thought, OK, I just have to put her in a new situation, a new crime to solve in a different part of LA. You know? So for the other four, were they loosely based on other stories that you had covered? Yes, they were. Yeah. In fact, Sugar Skull, um, my second book, uh, was very much inspired by uh, Day of the Dead, hmm. Dia de los Muertos, and was in really, in, yeah, I've show got, off your socks, I've got like Day of the Dead socks here. And um, what happened was, um, I don't know if you remember the band Los Lobos and how the lead singer Cesar Rosas, his wife was murdered. And his wife, by a family member, and his wife had been adopted as a child. And she suffered from depression. And she thought, if I could only find my roots, my family, my biological family, maybe I would not be so depressed. Or maybe I would find out that my entire family suffers from depression. And you know, this is like you know, who we are. So the band hired a private detective to see if she had family. And they found a half-brother who was younger than her. And so that was the good news. The bad news was he had been in and out of jail since he was like a 13. Uh, he had not been adopted. And he had grown up very dysfunctional. And he had been arrested for arson and assault and drugs and all sorts of stuff. So they knock on his door and say, congratulations, you're related to the biggest Latin rock band in the world, basically. <laughs> and we want to help you. Your sister wants to help you. You want a job. You want to go to school. You want a place to live. We are here for you. And a year and a half later, he murders his half-sister. Mm. So I mean, talk about like the Pandora's box, right? Because if she had not gone to find her biological family, she'd still be alive, right? And so as a, as a writer and as a reporter, this was just mind-blowing to me. And the guy was caught. He confessed. Um, he was in jail, and my editor said, go down and interview him. And so, and so I called his um, public defender, because at that point the band was like, no, we're not paying for your defense, sorry. Um, and the public defender said, yes, my client feels remorse and he'd like to speak with you. Um, go down to LA County Jail and interview him. So I went down there and I waited for three hours and I filled out forms and he changed his mind and he didn't want to talk to me. So um, boom, I didn't have a story. Mm. But I did have a story. Mm. It was haunting me and I ended up writing a book about it. And um, actually, that, <laughs> that book ended up being Savage Garden, not, not Sugar Skull. But it is set, what, what happened was, um, when you write a book about um, a real, that's inspired by a real life event, 
like this case that I'm telling you about, you cannot take the real life events and just dump them into a plot. You have to change everything. Mm -hmm. So for starters, I took it from the um, rock world and I moved it into the LA theater world. And the book's Savage Garden starts um, on opening night of a play at the Mark Taper Forum. And the playwright is like this Latino guy from the hood, and he's keeping it real, and he's writing about you know the barrio, and um, the lead actress is his ex-girlfriend, and so it's opening night of the play, and the entire city is there, the mayor and everybody, and the lead actress has not shown up, and she's so um, and uh, so the reporter gets sent out to like her Echo Park bungalow to find out where is she, what happened, how can she not be there for the opening, and she finds something, and that's how Savage Garden starts. So I'm sorry, I kind of segued from right. Sugar Skull to Savage Garden. But when I was trying to figure out a title for the book, which didn't come um, till you know a couple months in, I I was I, I liked the idea of Savage Garden because I, L.A. is like a savage mm -hmm. garden. You know, it's beautiful, or all of Southern California really. You know, you've got these like um, you know the the mountains and the ocean and these trees and you know, but it's lethal. You know, there's like evil lurking behind the palm trees and everything. So in, I, in every neighborhood. In every yeah, neighborhood. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Now, after your five Eve Diamond books, you decided to venture out and move your way to Last Embrace, which you chose to put in 1940s, or late 1940s. Yeah. Um, which is more in, in tune with those noir... Uh, stories that you were so fond of. Was that the choice to like kind of tap into that mode after writing a modern noir to like take it back to the 40s? Well, you know, LA is the birthplace of noir and I think it's as noir today as it ever has mm. been. Except that, you know, the archetypes have changed and the femme fatale is likely to be, you know, some ar beautiful Armenian Sure. femme fatale mm. or you know and the, the the gangsters might be you know russian mobsters or you know korean or you know the the latino you know drug syndicates or something so i mean i do think there's only like six stories out there and they just keep repeating and it's just a matter of um tone and um setting and you know voice in terms of how, how you how you write the the stories, but um, I did want to go back to kind of the source, you know, and the, the 30s and 40s in LA were certainly the, 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 the epicenter of noir and, and where it all got started. And, um, but I didn't want to write like a Black Dahlia kind of thing because the Black Dahlia has been done so much. I didn't want to fictionalize the Black Dahlia. But in my research, I found that there was this other woman who disappeared two years after the Black Dahlia and she had, uh, was a starlet, and uh, she lived in the Park La Brea apartments that had just uh, been um, built back then. And she had an ex-husband, and she had a child, uh, and she um, you know, was palling around with movie stars, uh, like Kirk Douglas, and she was just this beautiful statuesque uh, brunette. And she disappeared when she told her mom I'm filming a movie tonight. Will you watch your granddaughter, the, my little girl, and um, I'll pick her up in the morning? And she never came back. And so when she, when morning came, the mom started calling up all her friends, saying, "Do you know where she is? Do you know what happened?" 
And it turned out nobody knew where she was. There was no movie filming because, you know, they take out permits and they don't usually film at night. And there, so there was no movie filming unless maybe it was a blue movie, you know, an X-rated movie mm -hmm. or something. And so then, um, so she called the police and said, there's something's wrong. I know it. I'm her mom. I can sense it. And the police were like, oh, yeah, you know, call us in 48 hours. She's a, she's a starlet. She's probably, you know, shacked up with a producer somewhere. And then the police found her purse in Griffith Park. Somebody, somebody uh, found it. And it had a broken, <coughs> broken strap. And inside was a note that said, Dear Kirk, I'm going to see the doctor next week. I think it's for the best. Love Jean. Her mm. name was Jean Spangler. This you can look it up. Jean Spangler, and um, so lots of questions, right? Who's Kirk? What kind of doctor was she going to see? Was she pregnant? Well, she was making a movie with Kirk Douglas, mm. and it's young man with a horn, and she was like a she had a bit part. She's like walked on for thirty seconds. And so the police went to Kirk Douglas and, oh no, Kirk Douglas actually called the police and said, look, I've, I, you know, I've read the newspaper about this mystery Kirk and I want to tell you that, yes, I knew her and we, we, were, we flirted and she was cute, but, you know, we would joke around on set, but we weren't having an affair or anything. And so Kirk Douglas was cleared, the ex-husband was cleared, and her body was never found. And no one knows what happened to her to this day, but it turned out that Two weeks before she disappeared, she was hanging out. She was seen hanging out in Palm Springs with some of Mickey Cohen's men. You know, Mickey Cohen was the big uh, LA gangster at the time. And the two guys she was hanging out with also disappeared around that time. Mm. And there was another gangster, um, Stan Dragna, who was um, a Sicilian gangster. And he and Mickey Cohen were kind of fighting for control of uh, the, uh, the LA rackets. And so there is talk that um, Mickey Cohen's enemies had all three of them killed and that maybe the starlet was at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. But nobody knows. And so in The Last Embrace, I kind of go back there and reimagine it. And I change a lot of the facts and everything. But um, it starts with a bunch of young actresses living in an old boarding house in Hollywood in an old kind of rundown California craftsman house. Now, we're going to jump ahead. <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about surf noir, this term. Yeah, so, um, you know, I grew up in the valley. And like many people in the valley, I went to the beach a lot because the valley gets to be like 115 in the summer. So we, we would always go to the beach. And then I went to Loyola Marymount, which is literally on the beach. And so I always had this kind of love-hate relationship with this whole beach culture. You know, it's so beautiful and the beach boys and all those crooning melodies and the white sand and the surf and the surfer girls and beach volleyball and all the hard bodies and bikinis and tans and everything. But, you know, I went to a lot of parties and saw a lot of really predatory behavior mm. and, um, you know, it, the whole thing just kind of haunted me. And so I wanted to write a book that kind of explored the dark side of our Southern California lifestyle that we export all over the world, you know, the whole kind of Beach Boys myth. And um, so I wrote Damage Control. And when I was 
writing the book, I was thinking, okay, so what's the plot of my next book? And at the time, there were all these like uh, political scandals going on. There was John Edwards, the he was supposedly going to be the next Democratic uh, presidential candidate who had a baby with his uh, mistress, who was his videographer. And there was Arnold Schwarzenegger who had the baby with his housekeeper. And there was the South Carolina governor who was hiking the Appalachian Trail, but he was actually in Ar Argentina, Argentina with his yeah. mistress. So I thought, what if you were like a political person and you had a secret? And that secret would, if people found out, it would ruin your career. Your wife would leave you. Your kids would hate you. It would just destroy you. What would you do if you were a po powerful political person with a lot of money? What would you do to keep that secret from getting out? Well, for starters, you would hire a damage control PR firm to steer through the, the media and the firestorm of, you know, what, to prevent stuff from getting out. So I created this um, senator, and he's, you know, a little like John Edwards. He's, like, said to be the next, uh, you know, pr vice presidential, presidential candidate. And a beautiful young woman in his office has been found murdered. She's his new media director. So they spend a lot of time together because he doesn't know how to tweet. <laughs> he's like an old dude, you know, and he doesn't know how to do, like, you know, video blogs and Facebook posts. He's really stiff and everything. So she helps him out. And she's found murdered, and he was the last one to see her alive because um, they had drinks in Koreatown. And then he dropped her off at her apartment. But he didn't kill her, so he says. And so this young woman is brought in to be his um, PR person to help him navigate through this world. And um, she grew up very dysfunctional, and she grew up going to the beach, and she she was really poor. She was like a scholarship student. And her best friend was this really wealthy girl who lived on the beach in Pacific Palisades. And um, when they were 16, they went to a beach party and something happened at night on the beach. And we don't know exactly what, but it kind of ruined their friendship. And they haven't seen each other for years, these two girls. But the poor girl always remembers this family because they were wealthy and they, she aspired to be like them. And they taught her about, you know, fine dining and and they took her on vacation with them and um, they showed her the finer things in life so she because her family's so dysfunctional her father's an alcoholic she grows up to be a damage control pr person because she's been doing damage control her entire life mm. for her family and when she walks in to meet the new client who she's going to represent she does a double take because it's her old friend's dad so then she has to think oh is this family everything that I thought they were when I was a teenager? Can I believe what my friend's dad says? What secrets are they hiding? And what about my old friend? What happened that night on the beach 15 years ago? And so that's the book is kind of resolving all of that. That's fantastic. So now you've covered all these different areas. Is there a part of LA that you feel like you haven't addressed yet, that you haven't Oh, there's so many, you know. I mean, L.A. is just, it's the gift that keeps giving. I mean, I, I see L.A. as kind of this femme fatale, mm. you know, that when I was younger, um, I always wanted to leave L.A. I was like, I'm going to go live in New York. I'm going to go live in Moscow and be a foreign correspondent. I'm going to live, you know, in Tokyo or Hong Kong. And I always just kept getting drawn back, 
you know, and here I am. But it's become kind of my muse, you know, it's like the evil muse and the good muse, but it's, it's the muse that, that just never stops. But um, I'm, I'm still always finding out new things about LA. For example, um, there, the, the only um, Chumash kind of Indian existing hot springs and sacred site in LA is in West LA at University High School on the wow. campus of University High School. And I've actually done a piece on this that I'm, I'm gonna place somewhere, I'm not sure. But you can go there. It's like open like the, I think the first or second Saturday of the month. And it is like surrounded by, you know, West LA, but it is so peaceful there. And there's these giant trees and there's like literally these, the water's like bubbles up from, from the ground. And it's an amazing place. And so, yeah, you know, I'm always discovering new things about LA that that I love, and you know, with um, the other the other books that I've edited, you know, the LA Noir books, um, that was an opportunity for the the uh, the authors and I to really write about different parts of LA, and um, the LA Noir anthologies. Um, I didn't write I didn't write the short stories in them. I was the tell, editor. tell us about how that came about? How were you approached to put it together? And uh... Yeah, my usual publisher is Scribner. Hmm. And then this other publisher called me um, and said, oh, we hear you write about L.A. noir. You know, your books are noir and dark and glamorous and gritty. And, you know, would you be the editor of this collection called Los Angeles Noir? And I said, sure. And they said, okay, we want you to get 15 writers to write 15 brand new short stories and the only thing we ask is that each writer set their short story in a different part of LA. And I thought, that's a really cool premise. Oh, and of course, someone has to die in each story. There has to be a body. <laughs> so, um, so I called up all my friends like Janet Fitch, you know, who wrote White Oleander, Susan Strait, who was a finalist for the National Book Award, Naomi Hirahara, who's a wonderful Japanese-American writer um, in LA lots of people and they were all like oh cool okay and so and Michael Conley you know who writes wonderful crime fiction set in LA um, he's got the Harry Bosch character I think there's mm. a TV show mm -hmm. now um, with his character on Amazon yeah and um, so Michael Conley said different part of LA hmm can I write about Mulholland Drive and I said yes because that's a part of LA because even though it's not a neighborhood when you say Mulholland Drive we all know exactly what we're talking about. Mm. We're talking about exclusive neighborhoods hidden away behind, you know, walls and gates and uh, trees and twisty, windy roads. I said, oh, so Michael, is there going to be a car that goes off a cliff? And he goes, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so it's this short story he wrote is called Mulholland Dive. And then... <laughs> And then another author wanted to set a short story um, in the LA River. And I said, yes, because of course the LA River is its own ecosystem and symbolic kind of uh, part of LA that's like paved over in concrete and tamed and yet weird, truly weird. Mm. Um, and many different parts of it too. And, um, and then someone said, um, how about the city of commerce? I said, you just want to go gamble <laughs> in the casinos. He said, don't tell my wife. <laughs> so um, what was really cool about it was it did take you into neighborhoods that aren't really neighborhoods, 
Commerce is, but LA River, you know, Mulholland Drive. But they're, they occupy like um, symbolic space, psychological space in our heads. And we know exactly what that means, you know, LA River, Mulholland Drive. And so it is really a travelogue through the different neighborhoods of LA. And um, so that was the one that won the Edgar Allan Poe Award. And I'm so proud of it. I wrote a short story too that is set mainly in the gravel pits of Irwindale. <laughs> Good place to dump a body. Sure. And um, now part two. Part two How did that come was about? the classics. And so uh, the, uh, the publisher called me and he said, okay, so now we have a new proposition for you. We want you to do L.A. Noir 2, the classics. And you don't have to do any work. All you have to do is give us a list of 15 short stories and 15 authors. Go back in time as far as you can uh, in the history of L.A. literature and um, just give us a list and we will go to the estates of Raymond Chandler and... Um, you know, uh, Ross McDonald and whoever you choose, and we will get the rights from the estate. And of course they tricked me because um, being a kind of OCD person, I couldn't just like bang out a list. I had to read every short story set in LA that involved a crime and research going back as far in time as I could. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to find some stories set during the mission times? you know, like the 1800s, oh, yeah. 1700s or 1800s or something, with like, you know, uh, like a padre who gets involved with an Indian maiden, <laughs> a Chumash you know, maiden, and then is murdered in his bed by some, you know. I just thought, wow, that, that could be really cool, and that could be like really early California noir. Well, no, it doesn't exist, so you all can go write it, because <laughs> <laughs> um, noir is really an urban phenomenon from the 20s and 30s, and um, it came about because of the, um, the urbanization, uh, prohibition, which create, you know, everybody became gangsters, right? The Kennedys, that's how they made their fortune, right? Smuggling in booze from Canada and Mexico. And everybody wanted to drink, so everybody went to speakeasies. So everybody was a criminal, right? Because you drank and you could get arrested for it. And um, so it created, and it created huge corruption with the police. So all of a sudden the police was corrupt and then of course the Great Depression where everything crashed, you couldn't count on the government, no one was going to bail you out, it was this kind of alienation and um, you know the government wasn't going to help, the police were crooked, prohibition, the Great Depression, urbanization and it just created the perfect kind of cauldron for noir to thrive, especially with the corruption, you know, political corruption and everything. So the earliest that I could find in Los Angeles was um, James M. Cain had a, had a really good story about riding, a hobo riding the rails into the San Fernando train station um, in the early 30s. And, um, and there were several other uh, short stories that I found uh, set during um, the Great Depression and um, Prohibition. Now the other weird thing about Los Angeles when you think about it during that time was it wasn't the LA we know today and writers tended to live in Hollywood or downtown or that kind of air, Pasadena that area and each story had to be set in a different neighborhood of LA so I really had to kind of stretch to f because all the stories were set in Hollywood or all the stories were set in downtown. And so I really had to kind of 
search. The other thing I really wanted to do was when you think of noir, you think of dead white guys. Okay, you think of Raymond Chandler and James M. Cain, and well, Elroy's alive, but um, you know he writes about the past, and uh, Ross McDonald. Um, but there actually were a lot of um, there was a lot of diversity going on too. There were authors like Chester Himes, who's African American, and the short story that I chose for L.A. Noir to the classics actually was published in Esquire in the 40s. Um, so he was really, he's probably was more famous then than he is now. He's kind of forgotten now. Um, I also tried to find Latino and um, Asian American uh, writers who were writing crime fiction way back when. I couldn't find it. And I was like, wow, this is like this weird like lacuna, this is a weird hole. Like, wh why am I not finding it? I'm just not looking in the right places. So I called up like Chicano studies departments at universities and um, um, Asian American literature professors. I said, okay, so tell me who was writing like crime fiction or you know st stories set in LA with a crime? And I was like, no, we really can't think of anybody. They were writing gener intergenerational stories, assimilation stories, mm -hmm. immigration stories, family stories. Think of Amy Tan. Right. You know, before that, who was writing about that experience? The other thing was those communities, those people, they may have been writing, but they weren't getting published by the New York Press because they didn't have the connections, you know? And they were basically trying to like get a, a handhold in the American society. And they were also um, probably did not want to air their dirty laundry. It's like, if you're trying to get accepted by mainstream America, you're not going to write about Chinese, you know, syndicates or tongs, you know, who are committing crimes and murders. That's not how you want to present yourself. So I did find wonderful writers who were Latino and Asian American, but they're more recent. Mm. Some of them are writing about the past, like Naomi Hirahara has a wonderful story set in Terminal Island by Long Beach. Um, and uh, it's a young woman and her husband. They've just come back from Manzanar, from being interned. World War II is over. And they are faced all of a sudden with housing covenants. They want to move to a nice part of LA. But all of a sudden, because they're Japanese, they can't move to many areas. And the wife is really mad. And she is the daughter of a fisherman. And she, let's just put it this way, she knows how to use a, a fish, a gut, how to gut a fish, <laughs> these big knives. And she's not so, so happy with her husband. And anyway. Naomi Hirahara, if you meet her, she is the, 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 the nicest, most lovely author. And you look at her and go, how could you write that really dark story? You know, because also a lot of her novels are, are kind of mean, they're not so dark. But boy, she really like brought home the noir for, uh, <laughs> for L.A. noir and for stories set in the 40s and, and, and early 50s. So, you know, I, and I was also really happy to find women who mm. were writing um, crime fiction um, and noir in the 40s and 50s. And um, one of um, the, the, there was a story that was set in Santa Monica during World War II. And I forgot about this, but the entire coast was blacked out because we thought the Japanese were going to invade, right? And so these stories that were written at the time, they're not trying to make this point, but they're just writing about events as they're happening. And so, yeah, it's like the coast is blacked out. Perfect for crime, right, to happen when the, the coast is blacked out. And so there was this woman named Lee Brackett who wrote this short story in L.A. Noir 2, and it's set in Mar Vista, 
and uh, Santa Monica. And Lee Brackett was a really interesting character because um, she was a, was a very well-known writer. She wrote um, for a lot of the crime magazines of the time. Um, there were a lot of magazines that people read, like The Thrilling Detective and Black Mask. But she would just send her stories in. And because her name was spelled Lee, L-E-I-G-H, it's gender neutral. So they just assumed she was a man because it was thought at the time that women could not write crime fiction and noir dark stuff because our delicate ladylike minds did not go there, right? We couldn't write about crime and graft and corruption and murder. And so Howard Hawks was a big fan of Lee Brackett's short stories. So he told his secretary, get me that guy Lee Brackett in here. I want him to write the screenplay to one of the Raymond Chandler books. Um, and so a few weeks later, in walks this young, tall, statuesque brunette who shakes Howard Hawks's hand and says, hi, Howard, I'm Lee Brackett. And he almost fell out of his chair because <laughs> he thought it was a man. But of course, she ended up writing um, the screenplay to one of Raymond Chandler's uh, books. And then she wrote a lot, of, um, a lot more crime fiction, and she wrote science fiction. And when she was in her 60s, she got a call from George Lucas, who said, would you write the screenplay to The Empire Strikes Back? Hmm. And so she actually has co-credit <clears throat> for The Empire Strikes Back. She was an amazing woman. She was a dame. And she succeeded in two genres back when women did not really pierce those worlds. Crime fiction and what's the more dude-oriented genre than crime fiction? Science fiction. <laughs> and she lived to be in, in her 80s and she was very successful and someone should like write her biography because she's kind of forgotten and if she was a guy she would be as well known as Raymond Chandler. So that's my little spiel on L.A. <laughs> Noir and bringing back uh, forgotten writers who lived and worked here. Well, I wanted to thank you, Denise, for taking the time to come and talk with us. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for joining us this evening. Also, thank you again, Jeffrey Crussell. And thank you to Danielle and Teresa Gaiman for opening up your house to us. Thank you, Beautiful everybody. House. This has been The How, The Why by 1888. I'm John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanek and yours truly, with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The music is Mayalua by Bossa Zuzu. I wanted to thank everybody for your creativity and your inspiration, and to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.